Valora is the easiest way to send, swap, collect, and purchase digital goods on the Celo blockchain. Download the app and start exploring dApps like RE Gallery today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. What is this banter that you speak of? <laughs> what is banter? No fluff and empire. No. We don't like to no. talk about fluff. There's a lot going on. How you doing, man? You know? how's, how's the week treating you? Feeling great, you know. I'm on a runner's high. I told you I was going to run last uh, roundup. So I went to London, ran that marathon. And uh, yeah, I had a good time. London's great marathon. So yeah. I heard, feeling, I heard you. Uh, yeah, you broke three Other hours. And of course, all the stuff that's going on. Uh, 240, two hours, 47 minutes and 18 seconds. Sub seven, huh? Sub seven minute <laughs> average. Nicely done, sir. Uh, six, 620 per mile or 347, uh, 357 per kilometer. So it's good. Not that yeah, we're tracking this. Yeah, but who's, but who's counting? Right? But who's I'd rather. Counting? I'd, rather <laughs> listen, I'd rather track my. I'd rather track my running stats more so than look at TA on a crypto chart, you know, or, or like all these, uh, you know, because that's not reliable or or alerts in crypto as we've seen this week. So, anyways, I'd rather just stick to, you know, looking at charts of my running performance, which also sucks, really. Nice preach. So, do you do you have a trainer? How do, what what goes on with these marathons? Is this an annual, every year thing? Multiple marathons a year. Uh, I try to do at least one a year. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Well, we're back into the markets. It's kind of a weird, weird week for the markets, huh? You basically had um, yesterday. You had what's their name? I think it's Ar Arcam or something like tagged a wallet, and then it was DB News tweeted something out, um, and like it was kind of just a bit of chaos in the markets with this like flash crash. You had this like open interest got wiped. It was, I think it was that Mount Gox wallets were selling. And um, so if you looked at the if you look at the charts from yesterday, Bitcoin started the day around 27k, pumped to 30, fell back to the low, and then the the daily candle finished right in the middle at like 28.5. So you had like a 10% Bitcoin price swing. Pretty crazy price action. Can't remember a day like that in a while. Um, what, what do you make of the markets this week? Uh it's probably one of the strangest trading days like referencing specifically yesterday where you had you woke up during the day and the you know, the market was rallying bitcoin was up a ton and everything else kind of followed people of course were like hey there's you know every time there's a bank run specifically first republic was down like 22 percent pre-market and then people were correlating that to like the rise of bitcoin and it's like this is the case of you know why bitcoin why crypto you know ensued narrative <laughs> You close your laptop, you came back six hours later and you're like totally reversed um, that rally. Of course, then turns out that, you know, as you referenced, there was like this sort of fake alert. I think I think the biggest takeaway is it feels like crypto like in 2016. I think this is a more of a, a, a side effect of the low liquidity in the market. Um. Just these these dramatic price movements, I think uh, my estimation and all the accounts that I follow that are way more sophisticated that are looking at like liquidity across kind of exchanges and on chain is that uh, it takes far less liquidity to move prices, including Bitcoin. Right. And I think that's just a testament of uh, liquidity has really dried up uh, over the last six months. And so you do see greater volatility. Um, you know, like, of course, people would say there is volatility in the traditional markets, increasingly so. And I think that's more of a, 
testament of, you know, this sort of Wall Street bets movement and, you know, people are really, you know, click of a button can trade and a lot of it is just retail. I also saw a chart that says, look, the average holding for, for stocks has gone down from like seven years in the 60s to like basically a couple of months or weeks. And so I think it's just a kind of our generation is just more trigger happy to, to trade a lot. Uh, and crypto, obviously, it's just on steroids, right? But specifically on this day, I think it's just highlighting the lack of uh, relatively low liquidity in the market. Yeah. So what what happened is that Ar Arkham is a is it this like new data platform in crypto. They alerted users that Mt. Gox and these government controlled crypto funds were both on the move. They later said this was a bug fix deployed um, that that previously was causing alerts to be sent uh, sent by accident to like the small subset of users. What was also interesting was the um, the amount of open interest that was just wiped off the wiped off the table. So within crypto, uh, the global crypto's future market. Uh, wiped off 3.5 billion in open interest, and then actually, if you, I was looking at the global, the global metrics for this outside of just crypto, it was uh, the uh, global open interest dumped from 22 billion to almost 18 billion. Um, that seems low, though. Oh, excuse me, global global crypto open interest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so a bunch of, I mean, yeah, a bunch of futures traders got a, uh, yeah, took took off their interest. Yeah, that's what closed out their contracts. Yeah, it's a crab market. I feel like anything between 20 and 30K range is just going to be these weird days. So, like, if again, none of this is a recommendation of any sorts, but you know, I would cautiously advise against using leverage uh, given market conditions. You know, it's just you see days like today and, and, uh, or yesterday, and you know, it, it's not, uh, I mean, look, using leverage in crypto has always been a recipe for blowing up at some point. Uh, but, Particularly in these conditions, is just uh, you know, uh, it's it's tricky. Um, yeah. But anyways, uh, talking about today, I think you also saw a, a pretty sharp uh, rally on the low. Um, you know, obviously you could talk about uh, a lot of folks are still sitting on stable coins, right? Uh, haven't really fully deployed. Uh, they went to you know, and so I think they're using these dips as opportunities to to cost average on the, the, the way in. So. You know, maybe that's a good segue into kind of positive news or, or something else. But I mean, that's really kind of everything that I take from it. I don't know if there's anything else that you have. No, I mean, before getting into the positive news, let's talk about one more thing, which is uh, First Republic. You mentioned it briefly, yeah. but First Republic <clears throat> reported on Monday that its total deposits had fallen by 41% in the first quarter. Stock fell to, to, to record lows. Shares plunged, I think, by around 50% on Tuesday, fell as much as 35% on Wednesday. New low of, uh, let's see what it's trading at today. Last time I looked, it was like, or 80 now it's back up to 650 market cap of a little over a billion uh stock was halted a couple of different times um they had tried to find a kind of a savior they i think we're talking to the government about bailing them out they're talking to a couple other <coughs> banks about bailing them out and uh what what some folks reported um last night was that the government is not going to bail them out. The Fed, the Fed will not be stepping in. It seems like so now it's kind of over at least, to, over at least to the banks. not the, 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 There's a very interesting uh, piece of language there that said not currently, uh, which was a lot of people reading into that saying, well, maybe they just will wait for the situation to really, really deteriorate. Although, arguably, as you said, how much more can it deteriorate? Right? Um, yeah, that's sort of the question. Yeah, I mean, and they also already had two multi-billion dollar bailouts, right? A couple of weeks ago. So 
Yeah. Um, I think option one is basically you stay the course. If you're, if you're first Republic, you stay the course, you maybe wait for their secure, the securities and the loans to mature. That's a long road. They do have a little bit of liquidity that could, could help them survive. Um, mm -hmm. And that, I mean, that's kind of a dangerous game. Option two is you try to appeal to either the big banks or to private equity. So you could try to sell some of the loans and securities at the mm -hmm. same cost they bought them for. In exchange, the buyer comes in, they probably get some some sort of preferred equity interest in, in First mm -hmm. Republic. Probably a pretty tough sell because those assets are are selling for well above the, the market rate. Um, uh, I think First Republic's bonds mature in like, 2045 or 2046 and they're trading at 43 cents on the dollar right now so mm -hmm. i think if you're a bank if you're like jp morgan looking at this deal you're kind of between a rock and a hard place right you're mm -hmm. if first republic fails the fdic is likely going to want to avoid systematic risk offers insurance to all depositors um you, you probably even those without insurance right and then that costs a pretty penny to like the banking system probably has to get funded by large banks and that ends up costing them tens of billions of dollars so even if they don't go forward with an acquisition if first republic ends up failing fdic system is probably going to in one way or another end up costing those banks a lot of money um yeah. so that's yeah 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 we'll see i mean is this a systemically important bank unclear I, yeah. it's certainly it's uh my estimation what is it the 14th largest bank um, you're right. I mean, in, in March, roughly oh, a little over a month ago, March 16th, uh, a consortium of banks, including JP Morgan, Bank of America stepped in and infused like 30 billion. Um, naturally those probably are the folks that are now looking at, as you say, kind of picking up the depositor base. Um, the, the question of course then is like, how bad will it get? Well, like if the Fed really will, like, you know, if they if they let it die, quote unquote, and don't step in, like they did with Lehman and and others in the global financial crisis, then what happens? Like they get bailed out by a bank, they basically buy it for pennies in the dollars, you say, and like pick up all those depositors and like, uh, and are willing to absorb any withdrawals and like they they take all the kind of the assets yeah. and liabilities and then they hold to maturity because they can because they have a much stronger balance sheet, if you will most likely but the the thing that i am thinking about is like the game theory of like how long do you wait you know obviously there's a bit of a you wait as long as possible to if, get you, a better, if you're a bank like, you you wait as long as possible but right before it goes into receivership because i said there's two options there's really three options the, th the third option is what happened to silicon valley bank on march 10th when the california department of financial protection took possession of and closed forced closed down svb um, and then March 12th, when Signature Bank was closed by the New York State Department of, uh, of Financial Services, the, the NYSDF, right? That's like, I think the, the worst case here is if it goes into receivership, um, which just mm -hmm. means that like a regulatory authority or government agency takes control of the bank, takes mm -hmm. control of the assets. Usually the goal there is liquidate, you liquidate the bank's assets to repay the creditors. So I think if you're mm -hmm. a bank or a private equity firm, you essentially, and you're trying to optimize for the deal, you're basically trying to take First Republic to the brink of receivership, but not let it go into receivership. That's that's my understanding of this. Yeah, I th I think you're right. The only question is like, well, what about other banks and the potential cascading effects of people? Re like, there is a lot of jitterness, fear in the market. 
if this really goes to that level, I wonder if it's going to trigger a whole cascading effect of bank runs on other banks. And then, of course, the thing that most people are now looking at is commercial real estate and banks that have a big exposure to commercial real estate. And, you know, and so, yeah, uh, if you're the Fed, if you're J- if you're Jamie Dimon, I understand, like, look, not every bank is Silicon Valley bank, right? Um, there's some great charts going around in terms of the exposure they have to commercial real estate, to some concentration in terms of industry, region, right? Uh, a lot of the bigger banks, Bank of America, JP Morgan, I mean, they have a very diversified portfolio. Their exposure to commercial real estate is fairly lower uh, relative to other banks, um, or there's no particular exposure to any given industry, right? So look, all those things matter, but I do think that by and large, like, I think I do worry about the second order effects of really letting it, uh, pushing it farther and farther to that point of being very close to being taken into receivership and someone swooping in and buying it like a JP Morgan in terms of just general confidence in the market and depositors. So Bitcoin, um, I'm looking at the chart right now, Bitcoin pumped 10% basically on news that First Republic was struggling and it it started the week around 27, pumped all the way up to 29, what is this number? 29.9, we almost touched 30. So I thought Nick Carter mm-hmm. had the best take on this, which is mm-hmm. uh, he tweeted out. He said the fact that Bitcoin almost mechanically rallies on news of bank failures is one of the most validating phenomena I've experienced in a, in a decade of doing this. He said, to be clear, I don't want banks to be to fail, and I'm dismayed at how Fed policy has zombified the sector, which will surely slow growth. But having Bitcoin act in this manner is remarkable, nonetheless. And then he said, which I think is a good take. Also, I suspect the reason Bitcoin behaves this way is not because of some long Bitcoin short the banker narrative, but because each bank failure drives the Fed closer and closer to the liquidity bazooka, driving down mm-hmm. the denominator in, Bit- in BTC USD. Uh, I think that's a good take. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. You know, it, it all really comes down to liquidity. You know, and right. as soon as a as soon as the Fed really dried up liquidity, then you saw a huge correction in markets, including crypto, and so. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of folks are just, uh, it, it's tricky, right? Because before before that, there was a, a really um, two headline inflation numbers, one in the UK, one in Japan that was really sticky, fairly high in the UK. I think it was 10. Japan also recorded like record inflation. And so those those two things, I think the market really kind of responded to that. And um, I think it was like last Friday and Thursday. And so this sort of sticky inflation narrative is something that I think folks will continue to hear. Um, and but of course, specific to the U.S. is sort of bank uh, failure situation. Really, um, you know, and 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 the short of it is, as if you keep raising rates, then that poses a, a huge problem to folks like Silicon Valley Bank that had a huge portfolio of bonds that just for every rate yeah. increase. You know, yeah. you basically like if you need to mark them down, if you have like liquidity crunch, then it becomes very problematic where it creates a shortfall. Um, yeah. in a mismatch between assets and liabilities so yeah if they raise to four and a half five then yeah there will be more pain in the banks and and more bank runs and so i think they're probably not going to let that happen right agreed one of the most interesting things to look for in the next market i think is going to be the correlation between the spy and btc because i think if you a lot of remember when paul tudor jones was like bitcoin's the fastest horse in the race i think that basically unlocked a lot of hedge funds to start Maybe mm-hmm. not allocating to Bitcoin, but at least looking at Bitcoin. And so uh, before that, they probably 
didn't have these complex correlation models. And after that, they probably, I think a lot of them basically set up their correlation models um, from the 2020 to 2022 era when Bitcoin and, and, and the S&P were actually highly correlated. And I think mm -hmm. one of the interesting things that we should all look for is like, if there's decorrelation between Bitcoin and, and the S&P, decorrelation ends up creating long-term flows. So that's, um, that's probably something to look for here. Yeah. Although, well, is it, I mean, correlation is always a funny thing, right? Because people use, it's very sensitive to the particular date that you're using and the time period. Well, that's like, what I'm saying. Know, I think we're using, I think a lot of asset allocators use that 2020 to 2022 uh, You go even further. I think people were just using the correlation since like inception. And the problem was you never really had a global financial crisis. You never had a liquidity crunch. You were at record low interest mm -hmm. rates. Like everything was pumping. Guys, yeah. it's not an uncorrelated asset class. Like I never bought that argument. I, I, I still don't buy it going forward. I, I think simplistically, and I don't want to over-intellectualize things, is I think if crypto rallies initially, it will be just purely because there's way more liquidity in the market. You think everything pumps and Bitcoin's further out on the risk spectrum, so Bitcoin pumps Yeah, more. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that uh, like I don't want to. It's a good, it's a good left as, as much as I'm a believer, we talk about like we bring in great founders. We talk about the promise of the technology, but another part of me just is acutely aware that it's it's really high on the risk spectrum and naturally has a way higher beta. So yeah, you get more liquidity yeah. in the market, it's going to flow into this high risk asset, and it's going to have exhibit a higher beta than the SPY. That's it. Yeah, agreed. Um, all right, next topic. I have a mm -hmm. quick interlude though. One is um, Thousand X Podcast is back. You're probably okay. listening to this on a Friday or Saturday. Yeah. Avi and Jonah brought back Thousand X Podcast after a couple month delay because of some compliance issues. So uh, that was episode two of Thousand X. It goes live on the Empire feed. So if you're listening to this, you hopefully saw it yesterday. But if you didn't mm -hmm. listen, you can uh, you can listen. Thousand X is just a show mm -hmm. by traders for traders. Um, really good show. So go listen to that. Yeah. The second is. Um, we Blockworks is hiring. We have, a, we have a bunch of open roles, but one role that might be interesting to listeners of this is a director of podcast role. So we have seven shows at podcasts at at, uh, at Blockworks. I want to say now we'll probably end the year around ten shows in the network. We're launching a couple more in Q two and Q three. Um, mm -hmm. This is we are hiring someone to oversee the entire network. So if you are really deep in the weeds with crypto, you like macro a little bit. Um, you have ideas on like how to grow content and like ideas on how to make content like Empire even better, how to grow shows. Uh, you're comfortable working with talent like Santi, real pain in the <laughs> ass, tough job. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're hiring this role. It's a director of podcasts. Yeah. So if you have experience with podcasts or content and that sounds interesting I mean, to you, yeah. just yeah, DM, DM me on Twitter. Yeah, I think it's one of the greatest roles because I think the challenge for crypto has always been how do we keep people engaged? I think what we're trying to do here is just create pure as much as unbiased educational content for people to really learn about this space. Uh, but growing that audience and acquiring that and keeping engagement high is, 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 is a challenge, a good one, I think. Uh, how we present crypto to mass audience and really keep them engaged. And it's been really rewarding. Like you and I have been both in situations where we're in a random place and it's not your crypto native. It's like a pilot in an airplane and it's sort of like some random other person in the people listening so they're interested so all we got to do is just i think that's really the challenge uh, and the opportunity for someone to come into this role and, and really help us um with that yep agreed Valora is the ultimate wallet for exploring the cello ecosystem 
Easily access over 50 crypto assets and 30 different dApps for swapping, sending, and growing your crypto, all from your mobile phone. If you want to see real-world use cases for crypto, Valora's dApps page is the easiest way to access a growing list of the latest refi and defi applications including nft marketplaces like the re gallery dApps like re gallery which is available for android users and through valora's web browser are merging web3 with traditional commerce to give local artists around the world the power to transform their art into nfts and digital collectibles discover artists browse collections, and use your Valora wallet to mint or purchase NFTs for real physical products. Download the app and start exploring today. It's valoraapp.com forward slash empire, V-A-L-O-R-A app.com forward slash empire. What do you want to talk about next? You want to talk about Mad Lads, the Mad Lads Mint? We can talk about that. We can also talk about the episode we just recorded yesterday. Oh yeah, let's uh, do that. Let's do that. For like, We had a great episode on this question of can we decentralize sequencers? Because it keeps coming up, right? Like scalability as an overarching topic is something that we're going to continue to cover here because it's important, right? It's 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 one of those things that uh, you know you have optimism and Arbitrum and and, and, and Coinbase base and, and zk some zk implementations. Like it's going to be it's it, it's probably one of the most important phenomenon happening in crypto right now. But it, the question uh, and, and you know a number of people raise this question is the problem with a lot of L2s. And the architecture between Ethereum L1 and L2 is, is that um, you have this sequencer and and it's centralized at the moment. And so that has, the question is, can you actually get to a point where it's decentralized without compromising performance? And, you know, we all kind of want to progressively decentralize these systems. So we brought on, maybe, you know, you can kind of talk about who we brought on and, and how the episode went. Yeah, we brought on uh, Ben, who's the CEO of, so there are three, there are, three companies that are building out decentralized sequencer layers. There's Espresso, Astria, and Radius. And we brought on the CEOs of Espresso and Astria. Ben is the CEO of uh, Espresso. Espresso was working on actually a privacy L1 and mm -hmm. ran into a bunch of issues around, I think, decentralizing sequencers. Um, also, I, I, I'm pretty sure privacy just maybe isn't as interesting to users as they originally thought it was going to be. And then Josh is... Um, is building Astria, which is approaching same approaching the same problem, but attacking it from a slightly different angle. Mm -hmm. uh, they're both working on decentralizing sequencers and attacking it from kind of different angles. So, um, if you think about like what a what a blockchain does, you have like the data avail you have to make the data available. That's the DA layer. Then you have to like order everything, uh, and then you have to execute the transactions. And what they're doing with the sequencers is like basically trying if you have a centralized sequencer. That second step of like ordering everything, um, again, this is my understanding after after getting the breakdown from Josh and Ben, is like the group that orders those transactions right now, oftentimes it's just one one party, and they're working to make that many, many, many different parties, which is decentralizing the sequencer. Mm -hmm. My um my take is that we're still really early, but I'm happy that someone is like focusing specifically on this issue because it seems like a huge issue. I originally mm -hmm. I the, the why didn't fully make sense to me. So like the why of the, I get the why for a user, right? Um, there's a there's a bunch of risks of having like a, of having one centralized sequencer. There's like censorship risks, there's reordering, there's the fact that it could go down, there's monopolistic behavior. Those are like the risks of a centralized sequencer. Mm -hmm. The, I didn't fully understand the like why of why an L2. So right now, like if you have a centralized sequencer, that's a honeypot for MEV basically. And you can make a bunch of money. 
why would an L2 want to decentralize the sequencer? Like that answer, I think wasn't as tight as it as it could have been. Um, but overall, I thought it was a really good episode. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, all everything you said is super important, and and I agree with. I did ask him this question of, like, what's the worst that can happen for a user at the moment if they're interacting with optimism or arbitrum? And you know, Ben gave a more kind of nuanced answer, but it was not like super clear. Um, I do think that, you know, I I I I guess I also asked him like, why do you think a team like Optimism and Arbitrum haven't done this already? Um, because of course, some people raise this question of like, if something is centralized, then you know you can have some regulatory issues with that, right? If if there's like one particular party that you know it is centralized, right? The sequencer, then but that you know you'd want to decentralize that. Um, and we've had the guys of Arbitrum on the pod talking about this, right? Um, and fundamentally, I think that, you know, I guess I'll take a different take, which is users. The question is, will users really appreciate like the fact that it's centralized today? Uh, because what are the incentives for Arbitrum to fork or what are the incentives for Arbitrum to really be super extractive on MEV, right? Uh, the, the sequencer itself, right? Cause it will degrade the user experience. Like the incentive is not really there for them to like do certain highly monopolistic stuff that degrades the user experience because users can always go to a alternative L2. Um, the, on the other end of the spectrum, if you decentralize the sequencer, but the tech is really not there or it degrades performance, users will probably notice that and, and be perhaps more critical of that and then go to maybe another L2. You see what I mean? Like if for instance, one L2 decides to decentralize the sequencer and another one does not. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden fees are much higher in that other system or transactions are slower to process. I wonder what happens there from a user perspective, right? I think his history, blockchain history tells us that they will really focus on it's higher fees and slower transactions. I'm going to go to another environment, right? And that's just the state of like user experience and, and user behavior. And so, yeah, it'll be really interesting. It does feel early to me. I At the end of that uh, podcast, I asked them, hey, like, are we a year out, two years out? Like, when are we actually going to see these systems like a decentralized sequencer go live? And they both seem to think that it was going to happen sooner around later, like within six months, they said. Uh, I believe like they referenced ECC, which is actually coming up this summer. And so, um, you know, it'd be fairly interesting. It, it is no different, like... Decentralizing a sequencer, and as they would say, is no different than like kind of bootstrapping your own L1, right? It also reminds me a lot of the history of Lido, like bootstrapping like a, a decentralized validator set, right? So it's more of an economic challenge, not a technical challenge, as they said. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see how both teams kind of um, develop and work their way towards actually getting this live. What did you think about it in light of Tushar's comment from the Multicoin podcast about that? Yeah. <clears throat> Once I think you said that once L2 start to decentralize, you have to add consensus for agreement. And at that point, why not just use an L1? Yeah, that's sort of like the biggest question in my mind, right? And I don't think I have a... It's one of those things you're really not going to know until uh, they they go live. Um, I don't know, really. Hmm. Because, because I mean, you you, you both you heard both you you heard both of them say decentralizing a sequencer is no different than like bootstrapping your own L one, which kind of coincides with what Tushar is saying. The the nuance, of course, is like 
on the performance side of things and the execution side of things. Um, and that I'm not, uh, I'm not sure on, to be honest. I, I, th I think here's, I think here's the counter argument to Tushar's take is that adding a consensus, adding consensus and Tushar's definition of this, adding con a consensus layer make now makes you an L1 basically. But in reality, adding a consensus doesn't turn you into an L1, right? An L L1 consensus is responsible for ordering, uh, censorship resistance, uh, providing data availability and 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 uh, uh, val uh, validity guarantees to the light nodes. The the L2 consensus does not do any of that. So I think consensus on L1 versus L2 like does different things. That that's my that's middle of the point. point take on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is though. still some there is still some consensus, but I guess what you're saying is the intensity or the um, of consensus is not the same for an L1 than an L2. Even in a state where you decentralize a sequencer, the level of effort and the, the, the consensus that is required is not the same as the consensus required for an L1. Therefore, the argument does not necessarily hold. Tushar's argument. We are getting beyond my, my ability to argue with this stuff, yeah. but my yeah. understanding is that L1 consensus is responsible mm -hmm. for ordering, for censorship resistance, and for providing data availability and val uh, validity guarantees to the light nodes. And an L2's consensus does not does not mm -hmm. do any of that. So, yeah, yeah. It would actually. I wish we. I wish I had done my research on shared sequencers before recording the multicoin episode, so that we could have had that that kind mm -hmm. of conversation with Tushar. Yeah. So, I, I actually think it'd be really interesting to. There's like this panel that I want to put together, mm -hmm. maybe at per permissionless, which is Tushar, maybe like Steven from Arbitrum, mm -hmm. and then like Ben or Josh. On shared Josh, sequencers. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting conversation. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. That'll be nice. Yeah. All right. That episode comes out on Tuesday. Give it a listen, folks. Yep. Speaking of shared sequencers, Solana, Mad Lads, Mad Lads yeah. minted. Mad Lads minted. And it was really interesting. So, I mean, sh big shout out to, uh, to Tristan and um, who's, who's the other guy? Uh, Armani. Uh, on, on Mad Lads, they mint, minted at like seven Solana, and the floor is now eighty-three Solana. I think it is, like uh, objectively the most successful mint in the in the last year or two. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, just hats off there. I think there's a more interesting thing though, which is there's the Solana worked very very well through this whole mint. I mean, they, the the backpack app got got DDoS attacked. Um, so like they, mm -hmm. they kind of broke on day one or day two, but like Solana worked really, really well through all of this. Whereas ETH gets hammered every time on these big mints. And I think there's a conversation to be had around state compression and yeah, and just NFT, like NFT compression. And um, I think if you actually look at Solana with compression, it's a couple of orders of magnitude cheaper than its closest peers. And like let me, we, I think it was Chris Berniski did these numbers. It's it costs two hundred dollars to mint and deliver NFTs to ten million users on Solana using state compression. If you think about like the evolution of NFTs, NFTs in twenty twenty one were these like expensive and exclusive things. And if you believe that in the coming years they're going to become ubiquitous and driving experimenta experimentation at the bleeding edge of of, of kind of like audience meets creation that connection that happens there and that nfts mm -hmm. will sit in the middle of that i don't know solana performed pretty well here with with mad lads so 
Yeah. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. Obviously, it also was uh, most recently who called the death of NFTs? Uh, Some which uh, I think it was thread, like thread or <laughs> yeah, it was someone. It was more, and so generally speaking, I, I feel like um, it's very interesting to see a success of an NFT project in Solana. Um, we'll see how the floor holds and and the retention piece of it. Um, you know, a lot of these NFT projects have a very short half-life, right? Yeah. It's getting all the hype and look, there's renewed excitement and the Solana community has gone through a lot. And, you know, I guess it's a breath of fresh air for a lot of folks, right? That it faded Solana and, or, you know, and so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's great to see. I generally think that success of NFT of NFTs in any ecosystem is positive because I got to think that they onboard incremental like users into the space. Yeah. Uh, it's just a great funnel. So did you, so yeah. Did you invest in either Magic Eden or Tensor? Nope. Did you? Well, um, no, I didn't. I didn't. But the reason I bring it up is because th so those for those who aren't in NFT Solana NFT land, those are the two leading marketplace uh, NFT marketplaces. Magic Eden team of about a hundred people. They've raised nine figures in VC funding. Uh, Tensor mm -hmm. is two devs. Um, Two, two devs in, I think, New York, actually. Uh, one of them was at Two Sigma, was on the research side at Two Sigma. Mm -hmm. The other one, I don't know where they came from, but I think Trading trading World, just two really, really smart developers. And I actually, I mean, so Tensor just flipped Magic Eden for like NFT volume on Solana and love to see it. You got two developers beating out a team of 100 who have raised over 100 million in, in venture funding. So, and and they haven't launched a token, so... Nicely done, Tensor folks. There you go. Yeah. It's like a Blur OpenSea kind of thing. I mean, Blur now employs a bit more people, but for a while, it was just a very lean, mean team. Yeah. So shout, yeah, shout out to Tensor. Um, what would make you change your mind on Solana, Santi? I don't understand why people think I'm like bearish on Solana. <laughs> folks, I had, I had exposure to Solana. First of all, I invested in very early on both through being an LP and multi-coin, so I had exposure to that. Second, uh, at Parify, right? We bought at, uh, you know, as part of a consortium like other funds invested as well. Um, I've had close communication with Ben and Tolly. I've been in, I've been Breakpoint a number of times. Um, like, I'm not bearish on Solana. Uh, <laughs> I'm critical of like any system. No, no, I got to say, like even I got it wrong too. I mean, I got like uh, a lot of the Solana community saying like, hey, there's no reorg here. Like you should really understand how it works. And like, I, I was wrong, right? And so I would, I would agree that I'm not as close to the Solana ecosystem as I am to the Ethereum by virtue of my portfolio companies. A lot of them are in Ethereum. Um, but I've made a number of investments, probably between 15 to 20% of my portfolio is, has exposure or is working deploying in Solana. So yeah, like it matters. And, but I'm not like as, as uh, close to it. That's just the reality of things. Um, and I've said it time and time again, I, I was not, not in this podcast. It was in, I was being interviewed in another podcast. And I said, we were talking about like what defines communities, which I've always found to be a very fluffy construct and term, which people throw around lightly. But I do think that um, 
Solana has always struck me as you've already defined like a number of ecosystems. I think Solana is far more different than perhaps other EVM um, L1s, not only from an architecture perspective, but also from a just the, the DNA of Solana, if I were to summarize it, is like very resilient. We've had Anatoly here talk about like how they've gotten a lot of shit from the Ethereum community and others in, in crypto. And they've actually used that to re-architect and change some dynamics, in, in, including, for instance, how they determine fees, which is not just one flat fee. It's just based on depending. It, it, they've like re-architected the, the fee model in Solana, which I think is fascinating. And I think is one of the more important things that Solana has. It's like, in reality, it's like Uber, right? You have surge pricing in a particular geography. You have surge pricing in New York that doesn't affect surge pricing in Bangalore, folks. Yeah. Shouldn't. And so like those kind of their willingness to be very malleable and, and actually adapt is is very interesting. I think they're going through a pretty important moment, like Ethereum did after the DAO hack, um, that will really define their community and really harden them and, and they'll survive. Like I um in private conversations, I just had a price in mind and, and after it hit, like it was it was a goodbye in my mind, in my book, um, like sub ten. Um and but more importantly, I think the the other piece that I want to talk about is the Solana phone, which a lot of people are now getting. And that type of thinking and out of out of the box thinking is what you see in companies like Apple that just created like a new category, like an iPad. Like, of course, they're not creating necessarily like it, it's an Android phone. But when you think about the friction points in crypto of onboarding, like having a phone like that is the type of thinking that can get can go can get very like the upside of that experiment is very high. And I think that is perhaps one of the more interesting things and a highlight of the team behind Solana and their willingness to like experiment with these kind of things. So yeah, long answer. Like I'm not an expert in Solana. No, by any stretch of them. I'm like acutely aware of that, but I pay attention to that. And it's the second ecosystem that I'm most, most excited in terms of where I put my dollars to work. Does that make sense? Did I strike a nerve there? No, I mean, I, <laughs> I want to just clarify it because sometimes just people think that I, I, I am, of course, biased. It would be dumb yeah, for yeah. me to like, I just, I just do like I, where I put my money to work is where I'm most invested. So obviously Solana is not like, it's yeah, like yeah. the multi-tone guys, right? The well, multi-tone so guys so like, you bought, look so at you the world Solana. and lens yeah. through Solana architecture and they think that's the greatest and greatest. I just sort of like, I've never been a maximalist. Like, I'm aware that I think we're perhaps more early than not. And any sort of rigidity in your thinking is going to be like, is really going to cost you. And more so, how things get implemented now, where, you know, ideas spread much faster and these projects and experiments get a lot of traction and die much faster. And so the half life of that is so you can't really just. Is there a version here in probability that Ethereum is not the dominant L1? Absolutely. It's greater than 5%, I think. Like the race is not won yet, primarily because we have like a few million users in crypto active, much less than that. So like, can't really say, right? Um, so the barriers to entry and open source systems are lower. And so people can just switch very quickly as a lot of projects left Solana during this crisis to go elsewhere. And now we're wondering, was that a good choice? Now they can always come back, right? So, so yeah. you bought you you bought Sol in Q one? Yeah. 
I had a number in mind when it, it dipped below 10. Below it, 10. Like yeah. it hit 830 something or I was like, yeah. okay. That was the Solana's overday. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's always like when the pendulum, uh, the, the, the traditional investor that I follow the most, and he has a great memo now about like backgrounds and all this stuff is Howard Marks. And he is also always, um, one of the things that I've read, he has also a great book that like, uh, the, the most important thing, I think it's a great book, uh, but his memos are free and you can like access them on his Oak tree website. And the, the thing that has always stuck on me is, um, like price is the most important thing. Now, how you determine fair value of an asset's another, but prices can make you can buy a great asset at a terrible price, and it makes for a terrible investment. You can buy a terrible asset at a fantastic price. First Republic, for instance. Maybe you think it's a terrible asset. Maybe it's a shitty asset, not as pristine. But if you buy that for a, a dollar. <laughs> It's great. Like UBS, uh, for instance, like their acquisition of Credit Suisse, they'll print because they just got it basically for free. So anyways, um, I think that's what I, um, yeah, tangent, but uh, I love hard marks. Um, and I think price, price is difficult to ascertain in crypto, but I guess you just sort of like when you see something really get pounded on and the sentiment uh, gauging by the you know, sentiment on Twitter or just crypto generally, like it's just sort of tends to be a good indicator of when to enter or exit a market. Agreed. Glad we got you on Solana. You got me. <laughs> you got me, folks. <laughs> like, okay, can, can we talk about something? I'm actually really interested to hear your take. Now, I now can I tell, I, I can tell these Twitter comments I, we're, we're, we're getting to you about like... Dude, stop I, asking I me questions. Okay, now it's your time. Stop asking me questions. I'm going to ask you a question. Question is, so we had uh, the genius of Chamath say that uh, crypto is dead. I think the media, like the headline was, he said that crypto is dead, but I think he meant to say like crypto is dead in the US, but not to infer that the crypto as a whole was dead and there's no promise there. I'm curious what you think of that. If you don't spend time in, if you don't spend time in crypto every day, I completely understand how you think that crypto is dead. But to me, that is just a telltale sign that someone doesn't actually spend any time in the industry because Let's look at what we have going on today. You have all this stuff happening with Solana that we're talking about. You have these amazing conversations happening around L, uh, around MEV, like this whole episode of Bell Curve or season of Bell Curve with MEV, super interesting. Some of the smartest people I know right now working on what should happen with MEV. You have L2s like Optimism and Base and Arbitrum and like all this great stuff happening on L2s. You have like these brilliant minds who have like quit Google to go work on figuring out shared sequencers. Um, you have... Like NFTs make it, making a comeback right now, like with, with the hottest NFT drop in like the last probably two years with Mad Lads. Um, you have different, uh, you have like this whole Cosmos ecosystem, like kind of trying to figure it out, but like doing some really interesting stuff. I, I just think that, that that just tells me like they don't spend any time and it's not, if you, but, but like I don't fault them. I don't know. Like Tramoth is investing no. in okay. nuclear and like fusion and like, carbon credits i heard is his new thing like i'm i don't know uh I, and, yeah. that, and that that doesn't that doesn't shock me that he that he thinks that crypto is dead but if you spend any time in in crypto right now you would obviously know that you have like the 4626 erc 4626 uh the token vault standard gonna come out soon that everyone's gonna be talking about you have like zk evms you have 
the mm -hmm. Saga phone launch. You have like a, a liquid staking derivatives, like LSD Fi is going to be a thing in like Q3, Q4. You have like, yeah, roll-up sequencer decentralization, payment for order flow and like the MEV latency wars. It, there's just so much happening right now in, in crypto. It's so that just tells me that he's not spending any time in crypto. That's fine. He'll come back. Yeah. Uh, he was early in Bitcoin and then he like sold a bunch because he bought a house in Tahoe with Bitcoin and that cost him dearly. Um, I think you could have probably bought a whole lot of Tahoe with that Bitcoin that he transacted with for that parcel mm -hmm. of land. Uh, talking about like exciting developments, I think, um, you know, a couple of things that I've, I think we we mentioned here that are gathering our attention, I'd say it, there's been a lot of um, surge in, in base. This is Coinbase L2. There's been a lot yeah. of, they're still in testnet, of course, but like a lot of deployed contracts in testnet. Uh, I heard, you know, obviously Aave, Sushi, a number of other projects really kind of like, you know, uh, lining up. Um, there's still a lot of questions of how that's going to operate, right? Is it going to be have a decentralized sequencer? What's going to be the validator set? You're going to have to have KYC or you're not. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything you'd add to that, but anyways, I, I this is probably the thing that I'm following the most in terms of like developments. Obviously, the decentralized sequencer is farther out, but like in real time, this might be the most important thing because I really want to track, um, you know, the onboarding from like Coinbase exchange users in the millions into, you know, this yeah. L2. I think that that alone is going to could potentially be the biggest catalyst that we're going to see um, this cycle. Yeah. I mean, so if you're looking, so Blockworks Research put together um, a chart on uh, on the daily contract deployments for base versus Ethereum. And if you look at base, it's like, I don't know, somewhere like around 10K uh, contracts deployed every single day. And if you look at uh, base, it's, what is it right now? 60K. But earlier this month, it was like over 100K. A day on base so that i mean that's pretty impressive i think there's actually a third bucket by the way in terms of decentralizing the sequencer so if you look at coinbase they have like one they have a fully centralized sequencer network and if you talk to like astria or espresso and if you listen to this podcast that goes live on tuesday that's like a fully decentralized sequencer uh, network i bet coinbase will do a third option which is like one by one adding what like very very methodically decentralizing the sequencer so i have like i bet they will pick another big company in crypto for example that is very comfortable mm -hmm. running nodes or something like that to 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 be the second uh to like decentralize the sequencer by one so then there's two and then they'll pick another one and then there's three i think that's how coinbase will will probably decentralize yeah. their sequencer yeah so. speaking of really exciting developments in l2s um i mean i'm really curious to get your take franklin templeton uh launched announced this was yesterday uh franklin templeton is one of the largest uh kind of mutual funds in, in the world i'd say um but they announced that the franklin on-chain u.s government money fund uh is going to be the first registered u.s you uh, the first u.s registered mutual fund to use a public blockchain in this case polygon to process transaction and record um ownership um so basically if you have like one share of you know, this, this mutual money, uh, this, uh, money fund FOBXX, uh, is represented by one Benji token. Um, and this sits and lives in Polygon. And so if you're a token holder, you can exposure to the fund, which invests mostly in, uh, I believe like, uh, treasuries or whatnot. Um, and you have like a, their own app and in the app, you can see kind of this token, which is like the represents basically maps one to one. Mm. Um, 
it's interesting. I I'm I'm curious to get your take because like you mm -hmm. saw like Maker basically kind of go their own route and have to set up as a DAO like touch you know the real world and you know to get to buy treasuries like does this mean that you know basically you can buy benji tokens and get exposure to like can you do the reverse right if you don't have like a broker if you don't have like a, a an account with frank and templeton or whatever or like some other you know schwab or fidelity can you just buy the benji token and that gives you access to the money fund and if you do that do you have to like kyc do you have to do some like basically other process to like get onboarded does this only mean that like you can only is it just one way where you this token is kind of like restricted only to people that have like have access to anyways a whole host of questions but what's really exciting is to see someone like that um you know come in and one make the choice of polygon and two you know i think this is the first of potentially many of their products that they decide to register ownership um and and kind of transactions on chain which is very exciting i'd say yeah i mean franklin templeton it's cool to see making a big push into crypto their, their ceo spoke at a uh consensus yesterday i think it was um mm -hmm. like they've got a whole franklin templeton digital assets like division now i think it's kind of cool i think it's cool that they're you know how big that is market. what are these like five people or like 20 30 40 100 people uh i don't know i don't know i'm not sure <laughs> but i know they have 1.5 or 1.6 or 7 trillion AUM. Trillion. I mean, they're colossal. They're like yeah. a third of the size of Fidelity. It's a huge group. So, um, yeah, I know it is. I have something that I don't think anyone has reported on. We didn't, I don't think we've written about this. I don't think any other media companies covered this, which is I was looking at the, um, I was looking at the fund structure and uh, the expense ratio is 8.76 percent. That percent. Holy that, smokes. When this goes live <gasps> in at the end of July, that will make this the world's most expensive money market fund. Uh, I don't know I, if that's a typo. I don't know if that's a like I mean they're off by an order. Okay, of can, 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 can you send me a link? Like, you know. Yeah. Where yeah. we usually communicate. Uh, that that's I mean, if that's true, holy smokes. Here, here, here. Send this to you on uh you make for, it for context, the expense ratio would. of most funds is like point zero four percent uh, like point one percent would make it an expensive here look at your uh look at that message i sent you no okay hold on now they're oh, waving no you're, you're there's a fee waiver and expense reimbursement oh i see six. but why yeah, would that yeah. why would the total annual fund operating expenses be 8.76 percent that is the world's most expensive money market fund explain that to me is that like a buffer? It's saying the investment manager has contractually agreed to waive or assume certain fees and expenses, in this case, the 8.6%, um, so that total annual fund operating expenses, excluding acquired fund fees and expenses and certain non-routine expenses, yada, 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 related to litigation, indemnification, reorganization, liquidation, for the fund do not exceed 0.2%, which is more standard for most of, of these type of products, until July 31st, 2023 so they're only waiving it for this period during so, this okay, term here, look at the thing i just sent you so this is their actual website so then if you actually click the little thing uh -huh. above the expense ratio it says expense ratio 8.76 percent and Good then if you Lord. look at the exp gross expense ratio this is in like size two font here 
It says uh, reflects the total annual operating expenses for the share class shown. Mm -hmm. I mean, then this reimbursement goes away over time. Well, uh, basically, and it's only for like two months. Yeah. So at the end of the summer, this is going to be the Who's most buy these things the money the right market fund in the world. This makes no sense. Like, I'm sorry, but, you know, that's like who in their right mind is going to do this? That, that was like my initial question, right? Maybe it's they're assuming and banking on this like somewhat predatory behavior, which is the people that are going to buy this product have basically no access to this fund structure in a normal situation. So they're going to buy this token and, you know, get exposure to this fund. Yeah. But it's uh, it's quite strange, actually. Yeah. All right. I have, I have one more thing and then I got to wrap because I have a. Maybe, yeah. Well, I was just saying, maybe, this is just a reminder, folks. But great catch, by the way, because the headline is very bullish. I'm curious who buys this stuff. Like, they're going to get, like, you know, it's like the Coinbase no. NFT launch. You're going to have, like, $2 people invested in this thing and then realize. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it. But I, I, I okay. do want to highlight if someone, actually, if someone um, from Franklin Templeton or Polygon, you know, wants to come on and explain this. Yeah. Please do. Um, Circle CCTP. Uh, finally actually soft launched and i just want to give a quick overview i talked about this a couple months ago when they announced it but i think it's actually i think it's a pretty big deal that feels technical uh and so it's kind of been swept under the rug but i think this um in, in case you guys missed it cctp allows usdc to be transferred seamless seamlessly between chains and it's just going to enable this like better cross-chain ux if you if it, so it's mm -hmm. soft launched on eth and avalanche yesterday CCTP stands for cross-chain transfer protocol. It's basically a permissionless on-chain tool by from Circle that facilitates USDC transfers between blockchains rather than needing liquidity on the destination chain. Circle yeah. basically just mints native USDC after mm -hmm. burning USDC on the source chain. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if you like to yeah, get basically detail, like most bridges use this lock and mint, right? You lock an asset right. in one chain and then it mints another, but there's this period where you have to have liquidity in one and then there's all kinds of funky stuff that can happen. There's been hacks because of this, like, like Oracle issues or whatnot. What is so interesting here is that, uh, you know, Circle, you're basically, it's way more capital efficient. You're natively, like, they, they can basically burn USDC on Ethereum, mint natively in Solana or pick your L1 of choice. And so when you think about, most of the bridging is stable coins. I mean, stable coins are just massive in terms of like transaction volume um, and tra asset transfers in crypto. So this is huge. Um, yeah. Where do you think other bridges, does this mean like, I mean, of course, the question for this cross-chain transfer protocol, um, my understanding is it strictly for USDC, but like, what does that mean for other assets? And what does that mean for other kind of bridges out there? Do you, among, it's unclear, maybe you know this, if at some point you're going to, it's possible to like extend this functionality to a, a token other than USDC. What I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't fully know what happens with other bridges because as of today, MetaMask and 10 different partner SDKs such as Layer Zero and Wormhole have integrated with CCTP and, and actually five bridges have integrated with with CCTP, so I need to look into like, is this a competitor to bridges? Do the do the bridges integrate with them? I don't I don't fully get it. But so I'm reading uh, here like cross chain swaps. Like you can, they're saying you can like swap ETH um, on Ethereum for 
AVAX on Avalanche and like basically they're using USDC as that connective tissue, right? But if you have USDC on Avalanche, but you let's say you have you have USDC on Avalanche, but you want to buy an NFT on Ethereum, you can now seamlessly through a DAP that uses CCTP, you can it'll it'll route your USDC from Avalanche to ETH, then swap it to ETH to purchase the NFT. So just yeah. it, I mean it creates a better user experience. So yeah, for a lot of for a vast number of use cases, right? Yeah, but um, anyways, I think this covered a, a lot of it. Uh, light week, but uh, interesting developments. Um, so yeah, hope everyone has a great week. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, yeah, keep your eye out for next week. Uh, this um, sequencer decentralization uh, pod that's gonna launch, and and that's gonna be a good one. Indeed, be well, sir. Keep that right, sir. Uh, I'll try for sure. All right, guys, <laughs> have a great weekend. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>